Are Algeria and Morocco heading towards war? Why is the United States opposed to self-determination in Western Sahara? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute's interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Moain Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with Samia Razuki. Samia Razuki is a doctoral candidate in history at the University of California, Davis. She was previously a journalist with the Associated Press and Reuters in Morocco, where she also worked as a research associate with the University of Cambridge, researching the dynamics of surveillance and citizen media in the region. Samia is also a co-editor of Jadalia. Samia Razuki, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Connections. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, this August, Algeria severed diplomatic relations with Morocco. Tensions have been increasing steadily between the two countries since, with some warning it could even result in armed hostilities between the two states. What is the background to this crisis and where do you see it heading? So the recent escalation has been sort of a culmination of a number of developments, uh, most of which could lead back to you know, 1963 when uh, Morocco and Algeria were at war. Um, over a territorial dispute in the South. This is a but, sand war. Right. Um, so, but more recently, however, um, it has escalated following Trump's proclamation um, in which he recognized the Western Sahara as being under Moroccan sovereignty in exchange for Morocco normaliz normalizing ties with Israel. Um, since then, um, there has been a steady sort of um, uh, breakdown of ties between Morocco and Algeria that were already tenuous um, to begin with. Now the borders have historically been closed since the 90s, um, severing communities that have existed uh, along the border um, of Morocco and Algeria and interrupting um, a huge amount of trade and commerce between the two countries. But in August, what happened was um, there were a series of major wildfires in Algeria in the Kabil region in the east. And the Algerian government officially blamed um, Kabil separatist groups um, for being behind the fires. Now, um, Algeria also accuses Morocco of arming these groups. And um, the Algerian government claimed to have, see, to have seized uh, some weapons um, from this group, um, which they again claim that you know, Morocco backs them whether or not that's true, there's no evidence for it. But at the same time, um, while this was happening, a Moroccan official diplomat called for the self-determination of the Kabil people, um, sort of a response to um, Algeria's position when it comes to the Western Sahara. So in response, Algeria recalled its ambassador. Um, and at the same time this was unfolding, Morocco was engulfed in you know, relatively um, international <laughs> uh, wide-scale scandal regarding allegations that it was spying on a number of, um, uh, you know, foreign dignitaries, among them Algerian officials and um, French President Emmanuel Macron, in addition to right. another. And, and a number of cabinet ministers. Right. So, so that was sort of like the lead up to August. And since August, mm -hmm. uh, there have been a number of developments. Um, uh, several Moroccan truck drivers, um, you know, who are uh, in the commercial trade between Morocco and West Africa um, were found killed in Mali. Morocco accused Algeria of um, carrying out those uh, killings. And then more recently, um, uh, three Algerian truck drivers in the buffer zone in the Western Sahara in the South 
uh, were killed and now the circumstances of their deaths have still been unofficially, <laughs> they haven't been officially confirmed because access to that region is extremely limited. So um, allegations have been, uh, you know, going all about, you know, from drone strike to, oh, the trucks set were just caught on fire, but Mor um, Algeria has pointed officially the finger to Morocco. Morocco has not responded to these allegations. Um, and then there have also been a series of skirmishes along the border, primarily between the Polisario Front and, Moroccan, and the Moroccan army, though um, there have been reports that Algerian um, soldiers have been involved in these skirmishes. This is in the Tindouf region. This is along the border with uh, Morocco um, and Algeria as well. I mean, there have been some reports that these skirmishes have gone much further up north than um, uh, they're used to taking place. Not like they are. In fact, these skirmishes are relatively unprecedented um, when it comes to the past 30 or so years of the ceasefire that has been put in place. But but so this time also um, on the Algerian-Moroccan border and not only uh, uh, the border between Algeria and Western Sahara. Those are the reports, again, because of the very limited and constrained access to the region, a lot of these reports have not been corroborated. And this has been sort of one of the recurring issues when it comes to news coverage on this conflict is that access is limited. Um, and even, you know, UN officials, for example, find themselves very limited in their ability to actually go and see for themselves. And so this is part of the issue, um, more broadly speaking. Um you mentioned um, uh, the Trump administration's um, recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over uh, Western Sahara as, as one of the background factors to the escalation in Algerian-Moroccan uh, tensions. But now turning specifically to Western Sahara, um, that conflict, as you mentioned, um, a ceasefire and diplomatic stalemate has reigned there for almost three decades since 1991. But it has in the past year also seen a significant escalation. And as you mentioned, this has been further exacerbated by Washington's endorsement of Morocco's annexation of the territory to reward Rabat for recognizing Israel. What impact have these developments had on the prospect for self-determination for Western Sahara? So it has been extremely um, consequential. Now, initially, when this proclamation came out, um, interestingly enough, it solicited widespread condemnation on both sides of the aisle. In late here. 2019, early 2020, I believe. Correct. So even members of the Republican Party, including Senator Inhofe, John Bolton, um, were among the leading voices to condemn this decision. Um, and since uh, you know the beginning of Biden's administration, uh, administration, they have also been at the forefront of advocating for a reversal on this decision. Now, officially, the Biden administration has chosen to sort of neither confirm nor deny this position. So they're neither upholding it officially, nor are they um, overturning it. And this has left a huge sort of cloud of ambiguity when it comes to the US's position. And the reason why it's significant is because the US is the pen holder for the UN Security Council resolution that renews the peacekeeping mission in the Western Sahara every year. It just recently passed. And, and, so and if I may, I should, I should also add that none of Morocco's other um, traditional allies, um, like, for example, uh, France, 
have endorsed Morocco's claims of sovereignty over Western Sahara. Absolutely. I believe um, the UAE opened a consular mission in Ayoun or something to that effect. But well, so they had announced that they were going to open a consulate. Now, whether or not that actually has been the case, um, I haven't seen any reports of an actual opening of a consulate. Um, and it was very similar to sort of the US announcement, right? They nominally uh, inaugurated uh, an office in Dakhla, um, but officially now the US does have a position that they're not opening a consulate in the Western Sahara, and that's a major development. But essentially what it did is, um, you know, it forced the US outside of being in this position of sort of like a neutral, um, uh, you know, peacemaker. Um, though historically the U.S. has generally supported Morocco, at least, you know, militarily speaking. Um, and so what this has done is the, the stakes have uh, become higher, essentially. Um, and what this has done was uh, provide a basis for a resumption of hostilities. And so the Polisario um, recently announced that the ceasefire is over um, and has actively been engaging in various um, uh, military confrontations with um, the Moroccan army in the South. And on the other hand, Morocco is very keen on making sure that eyes are on Algeria as a major party in this conflict, a position that Algeria categorically refuses to accept. Algeria's position is that this is a conflict between Morocco and the Polisario Front, you know, that's as much as we can say. If I may, um, Algeria's position is basically that this is a question of decolonization. Morocco's position is that this is a question of national sovereignty. Um, but um, also the, the military escalation in Western Sahara, I believe, um, briefly preceded uh, the Moroccan-Israeli agreement. And there were already um, escalating protests and skirmishes already in October, November 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Well, even before in 2017, actually. So when I was reporting with Reuters, this was one of the stories that I was covering, which was um, the, the tensions around um, Morocco claiming that it was repaving a road in Girgeres, which is a buffer zone, technically. Um, no armed military forces on, from either side are allowed. Um, and when the Polisario raised the alarm, Morocco said, oh, this is a civilian mission. We're just clearing the road so that our truck drivers can make it safely to West Africa for commerce. Um, it turned out that uh, eventually Morocco set up a checkpoint and an outpost there and get to get it. And that was sort of the beginning of those confrontations that um, followed up and preceded the, the normalization. But that, that's another point that I wanted to sort of go back to about Israel and Morocco is that this normalization is very nominal. I mean, historically, Morocco and Israel have had enduring ties. Since uh, the 60s. Since the 60s. I mean, notoriously, and we can now confirm for a fact, this used to be a rumor, but because of declassified documents that he has in the second, um, you know, bugged um, a meeting of the Arab League. Uh, leading up to the 1967 war and provided the contents of that meeting to the Israeli intelligence agency. And so this is just one of many examples of enduring ties between Morocco and Israel. Um, 
also the fact that there is this significant uh, Moroccan Jewish population in Israel that travels frequently back and forth for pilgrimage. So travel is, you know, not restricted between the countries. They've had enduring ties. And so this normalization is very surface level. I mean, aside from setting up an actual, you know, they're calling it a liaison office, not even an embassy. Um, you know, there's nothing really much in substance there. It's not like sort of uh, Israeli ties with with Gulf countries, with Bahrain or the UAE, for example. It's a formalization um, of an existing reality. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So this exchange, this transaction, if you will, you know, Morocco didn't have to put that much in it. Is mm -hmm. the point here, and it received a reward that it had been vying for for decades, mm -hmm. but one that perhaps they miscalculated was going to be the outcome. As you mentioned, no other major country followed suit in terms of recognizing um, this position. And that was perhaps one of the cards that they miscalculated as being a result of this. And now, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Biden administration is taking this position of, we're just going to endorse the appointment of the new UN special envoy and let him do his work. Their position is that, if they either, you know, overturn or reinforce that Trump proclamation, that it will be seen as an obstacle one way or another for getting the parties to resume negotiations. And so yesterday, actually, there was um, an official meeting between Morocco's foreign minister, Nasser Boreta and Antony Blinken um, in DC, where, uh, you know, the statement from the State Department re referenced the Western Sahara as its own. Um, and that kind of can be seen as, okay, well, we're just going to resume the US's historical position before the Trump proclamation. So pretending like it just didn't happen. But, but I should add that it's maybe worth pointing out that the international position on Western Sahara, the International Court of Justice, already in the 1970s um, uh, issued an advisory opinion that the um, uh, that the people of the Sahrawi people are entitled to self determination, and uh, much of the conflict um, since has been about whether and how such a referendum in Western Sahara um, uh, will be organized. And the U.S. has had kind of this double policy, as you mentioned. On the one hand. Um, de facto supporting Morocco in its confrontation with the Polisario Front, but at the same time also investing in efforts to find um, a diplomatic uh, solution to this, um, to this conflict by, for example, appointing senior um, American diplomats as, as UN envoys and so on. Right, James Baker, Christopher Ross. Um, I would also add that, you know, the official acronym for the UN peacekeeping mission in Western Sahara is MINIRSO. The R stands for the referendum. So the primary mandate of the UN peacekeeping mission to organize a referendum. To organize a referendum. And as you mentioned, so there has just been a complete stalling over the question of who can vote in this referendum. Um, and that has been at the center of, of this, of the reason why this referendum hasn't happened. Now, the issue is that the more time goes on, the people that were once eligible to vote and participate in this referendum, um, you know, unfortunately are aging or passing away, leading away, leading way to more sort of convoluted questions of having to contend with the fact that there are now 
almost we're three or four generations in to um, Sahrawis being born in exile and, and, and displacement and, and the refugee camps in southern Algeria. And you know, that's an added layer to the sort of the human cost of this, which is um, hundreds of thousands of Sahrawi refugees have been living in very harsh conditions um, in Tindouf. And so that's sort of, you know, a major point that I think um, shouldn't get lost in, in this discussion because it's the true human cost. I mean, these families have been um, cut off from their homes and from their own families, right, in, in the Western Sahara. So that's a very important um, point to highlight. But absolutely. So with all of these developments, you know, it's becoming increasingly, you know, the reality that the chances of this referendum happening are increasingly slim. And diminishing. And exponentially <laughs> diminishing. Yeah. Um, turning back to um, Algeria for a moment, um, Algeria's relations with, with another state, namely the former colonial power of France continue to be a matter of uh, contention. Last month, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron denounced the October 1961 massacre of hundreds of Algerian demonstrators in Paris, you know, when bodies were thrown into the Seine and so on, but pointedly stopped short of offering an, uh, an official apology for this massacre. He then added insult to injury by going so far as to question whether Algeria even existed before French uh, colonization. Algeria, as you know, promptly recalled its ambassador from Paris and closed its airspace to French military traffic. At the same time, others suggest that Algeria's current government is in fact heavily dependent on French support in, in various forms. So, the question becomes, is there a genuine crisis in French-Algerian relations? So at the heart of this question, you know, it's not just that Algeria's current government relies heavily on French, but France relies heavily on Algeria in many ways. I mean, migration population, for example. Algerian migrants are the backbone of the French economy. Um, and so in terms of there being a genuine crisis, you know, every few years, this question flares up between Algeria and France. Um, it was something that uh, preceding president Francois Hollande found himself having to contend with as well. So I, I believe he was the first to actually recognize that the October 1961 massacre even happened. Um, and so- And also stopped short of an apology, I should add. Right. Yes, absolutely. And so I think the the major contextual point here is that it's an election season in France. Um, and so I think this is more reflective of, uh, you know, French political uh, dynamics um, in, in light of the, the presidential campaign that's unfolding, because every time there's a major presidential campaign, this question of um, France recognizing call, its colonization of Algeria comes up. Um, and so I think it's more reflective of that, though, however, you know, France historically has been um, a staunch supporter of Morocco. Uh, that has kind of diminished in some ways. Um, and there's a number of events that led up to that. So 
the first thing that happened was when Macron was a, a elected president, his first official visit was to Morocco. And it was at the height of the protests that were unfolding in uh, Morocco's northern reef region, known as the Hirak. And during um, his visit in Morocco, he, uh, President Emmanuel Macron delivered a press conference uh, where he was asked about whether or not this these protests came up in his conversations with uh, King Mohammed VI of Morocco. And then he sort of took a position of almost speaking on behalf of the king. And that was sort of seen as a major transgression, not just because the king has himself never hadn't spoken on it, but you know, here we have the French president speaking on behalf of the, the king of Morocco. That was one thing. Another has been um, the surveillance uh, spyware scandal that I mentioned earlier. So among the major stories, um, uh, was that Morocco was accused of spying on the French president, as well as a number of uh, French government officials and French journalists and activists. Sorry, so th this was this was Morocco using Israeli spyware, um, Pegasus and, and, and whatever, uh, to spy on uh, French officials at the highest level of, sp of state. But the reason why they did so has, has never been clarified. Was this related to Western Sahara or relations with Algeria? Um, Morocco has been at the forefront of taking advantage of this emerging market of uh, high grade uh, surveillance. And this isn't the first time that Morocco has used surveillance technologies well beyond its borders. Um, first case back in 2012, which we can discuss later. But so Morocco has, not officially even recognized that this, it in fact has categorically denied these allegations and has launched uh, defamation lawsuits in France. Though, as far as I understand though, my knowledge of uh, French law is very limited that um, there's a specific uh, um, article that prevents foreign governments from filing defamation lawsuits in France. So I'm not quite sure how far that's going to get, but um, no official reason was was truly given and that we can pause it, we can make guesses. I think it's just that Morocco has been able to successfully use this strategy of surveillance with impunity. And, you know, as you know, as so long as it's not facing any consequences, it'll continue to do so, especially because it perhaps is an effective way to gather intelligence and information. Um, you don't have to send any, you know, officers on the field you just press a button and listen and and, and watch um and this is one of i think uh, the major reasons why france has sort of taken a step back and it's at least public position in being um, a strong advocate for morocco um and i think this sort of fits in with the dynamic of this sort of triangle between morocco algeria and france and um, you know, historically, France has always been very outspoken and defending and supporting Morocco's position, whether it's on the Western Sahara or whether it's, um, you know, uh, supporting Morocco as a way to sort of uh, nudge Algeria. Um, but that hasn't been the case. Now, again, it could be because, you know, domestic politics are reigning supreme right now. Officials are more concerned with um, elections. Um, Sorry, are, are you here referring to um, the votes of French citizens of Algerian background? I'm referring to sort of elections in France in general, the presidential elections. Mm -hmm. um, so it would be interesting to see how these dynamics unfold following the elections. And I think that will provide us with insight about how genuine um, these issues are between the two. Right. 
Um, and 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 to what extent do you think energy politics comes into this? I mean, as as part of the um, tensions between Morocco and Algeria, Algeria has shut down a gas pipeline that has led to energy supply issues in Spain. But if we look at France, um, I believe France is is one of the main purchasers of Algerian hydrocarbons. So to what extent um, may that also account for what you see as a potential shift in um, French North African policy? Yeah, so the point of the gas pipeline is super important. I'm glad you raised it. Um, you know, there's this pipeline that supplies gas to both Morocco and Spain. So it's the versus Europe and it goes from Algeria to Morocco to Spain. Mm -hmm. And so in the context of these escalating tensions between Morocco and Algeria, Algeria announced it was going to cease supplying gas through that pipeline and provide Spain with gas directly, mm -hmm. um, essentially removing Morocco from the equation ahead of you know, the cold winter season. Now, Morocco is not a country rich in uh, energy resources. So this is definitely um, going to have significant uh, ramifications. But so the fact that Algeria is able to just continue supplying its European allies directly makes Morocco a little bit sort of, you know, uh, disposable in that uh, relationship. And so, you know, I definitely see that Algeria, and this has been historic, right? Algeria has a huge trove of natural resources, which is able to use and um, in shaping its policies and using it as leverage um, in uh, navigating its relationship with its European allies, specifically its former colonizing power, France. Um, so that's absolutely a huge component of it. And again, ahead of the winter season, right? If it's not already cold enough there. <laughs> right. Right. So this will be an issue for, for both Morocco and um, uh, European countries, which are already dealing with a potential um, energy crisis. Right. Um, if, if we turn back now to um, uh, Morocco, Morocco held parliamentary elections uh, this past September, and um, the parliamentary elections rather, and these saw the Islamist, uh, Justice and Development Party, the PJD, ousted from government um, for the first time since 2011. Uh, and it had been either uh, leading or a coalition partner in government for, for an entire uh, decade. And the surprising winner of these elections and the current prime minister is uh, Aziz Khanoush, um, one of Morocco and indeed Africa's wealthiest businessmen. So the, the question becomes, um, has the election uh, had a significant impact on Moroccan politics and government policy, or is this a question where you're really dealing with the state structure in which um, uh, the key factor is an executive uh, monarchy and royal court, and in which governments have only um, limited leeway in, in setting uh, policy? So my brief sort of <laughs> like really like concise response that would be that the election of Aziz Akhanoush is officially the consummation of the marriage between um, palace and uh, the wealthiest um, um, sectors of the private sector in, in, in Morocco. So let me take a step back here because uh, there's so much that is uh, worth highlighting. Well, um, and if I can add, Akhanoush was also um, 
a coalition member in the previous uh, Islamist. Uh, the longest government. serving minister of agriculture and fisheries in Moroccan history. He was the only member of the cabinet to maintain his position after the 2011 elections following the February 20th movement. And he was able to do so by re uh, resigning from his party. And then he only recently returned, um, it was the 2016 elections that he returned to his party, the National Rally of Independence, itself founded by an extended member of the royal family, this man. Um, back a few decades ago. But um, so the PJD has essentially been incapacitated um, as a political party following its victory in 2016. And this uh, took place in the form of the king um, essentially firing Idhabu Kiran, the former prime minister and the secretary general of the PJD and appointing Saeddin Utsmani in his stead. And um, one of the reasons for why this happened was because Kiran refused to form a coalition with Aziz Akhnoush's party. <laughs> you have it. Um, and lo and behold, uh, I think just a matter of days after Ismani was appointed, um, it was announced that Aziz Akhnoush's party um, was going to be a member of the coalition. This was in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's that dynamic. And then there's also the fact that Aziz Akhnoush is not only wealthy, businessman, one of the wealthiest businessmen, second only to the king, but he's also a very close personal friend of the king. Um, you know, a few years ago, there was always reports of um, the king and his wife going to have iftar with Aziz Akhnoush and his wife, Salwa Akhnoush, also a significant figure in the private sector in Morocco. She essentially holds um, a monopoly on almost every single major clothing franchise in Morocco, Zara, uh, Mango, all of the big names. And she's also the CEO, the founder of the Morocco Mall, biggest mall in Africa. So we get a sense of the dynamics that are unfolding here. But Aziz Akhanoush's wealth cult comes from his investment and his holdings in the energy sector, mm. Afriqiya gas station. Now, if any of the folks that are watching have been to Morocco, in the past five or six years, you're driving down the highway, whether you're going from Tanja all the way down to Marrakesh, there's only one gas station you will always see on the highway, and that's Ifriqiya, and that belongs to Aziz Akhnoush. Um, so, you know, Moroccans are very conscious and aware of his public and uh, his public presence, and not just as an official, but as a businessman. And this prompted a huge boycott um, a few years ago where uh, it was a leaderless um, movement that started on social media, um, but the goal was to launch a boycott of uh, specific companies. One of them was Ifriqiya, belonging to Aziz Akhnoush. Um, so the fact that he has been elected and appointed as prime minister, I think, takes the veil off of this illusion that this government is in some ways, you know, representative of, you know, uh, some, Parliament or public opinion. Right. It's not. I mean, it's subservient to the palace. But in this case, we're, we can now characterize it as a partner of the palace. You know, it's very much going to be a government that um, is not ever going to be in a position to challenge or push back against any royal decisions. The previous government was completely subservient. I mean, here we saw with the whole... Uh, announcement of the normalization deal with Israel, said Dino Etzman, he left out of the dark multiple times, found making statements that he ended up having to sort of swallow a few months later. Um, and so this current government, I think, just really cements 
what many folks have been saying, which is that this government is an extension of royal authority and that it does not serve to represent the will of the people, that parliament is a shell. <laughs> Perhaps some have even gone so far as to say a waste of public funding. Um, and, uh, you know, that's sort of what this election, I think, has shown. Um, but, but and the interesting thing is also um, in one of the victories that um, won in terms of the elections, not just that, but he also won the elections to be mayor of Agadir. So he's also the prime minister of Morocco and a mayor of Agadir. And to my knowledge, I'm not sure that there's a precedent, at least in recent history, of the prime minister also holding on to um, a local electoral position. In addition to the fact that he is still, I think he, there was a statement that he issued that he was no longer going to be involved with making decisions in his a private holding company. Uh, we have precedents for that as well. Does he have surely uh, do. <laughs> son named Don Jr.? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but at the same time, I mean, you seem to be suggesting um, that, that the palace or the powers that be um, engineered the out, ouster of the PJD from government, but other people have suggested that um, the Islamists had also uh, so consistently failed in, in their um, decade of uh, governance that they were simply unable to muster uh, popular support and even um, significant elements of their core base to once again vote for them. Look, the PJD knew that by virtue of taking on this position of being a leading political party, that their, their mandate was going to be limited. Mm -hmm. There's no qualms about that. I mean, and I think they, the first statement that Abdelilah bin Kiran made when he was appointed prime minister in 2011 was to say, the king is my boss. <laughs> and this was after he had established you know, a reputation for being a relatively fierce critic of, um, you know, figures who were seen as being cronies of the palace, namely Fuad Ali Himma, who was uh, currently a uh, senior uh, advisor to the king. But what happened, I mean, let me clarify, I, I'm not trying to say that you know, there was like a, an, an actual like coup or ousting, but that over the course of the, of the past decade, um, the palace has steadily subsumed the political capital of the PJD um, right. and drawing upon its popularity and essentially just wringing it dry. Um, and, and the PJD was a willing participant in its assisted suicide. Absolutely. And this is part of the equation that comes with being, you know, a major political party in Morocco. And it's happened to previous political parties. The USFP um, in the 90s, you know, also seen as sort of like the progressive and, um, you know, this will be sort of the government that kind of maybe changes things. You know, here we are <laughs> a few years later. So, but this is, this is the cycle of um, political history in Morocco. Mm -hmm. The palace is able to maintain its power and influence by, you know, incorporating this political capital from other parties and monopolizing it and making sure that no one political party dominates. That's the most mm -hmm. important thing. And that was perhaps where the PJD went wrong, I would say almost, is that they, they were, were too, too popular. Long. 
I mean, you know, the myth of Icarus here is quite uh, apropos. Um, I think they flew too close to the sun. And it was in the fact that like Ben Kiran was emerging as, you know, a major political figure, almost at the level of sort of, um, you know, competing with that of the kings. That right. ended and up being his downfall. Sabia, to turn once again to um, uh, regional affairs, I'd, I'd like to ask you, to what extent are other crises in the Maghreb, uh, such as uh, Libya and now also Tunisia, and in the Sahel region, having an impact on the domestic politics of um, either or both Algeria and Morocco? Oh, I think it's definitely a two-way street. I think it's um, these crises having an impact on both Algerian and Moroccan politics, but the other way around, that mm-hmm. the dynamics between Morocco and Algeria also having an impact um, on these uh, regional uh, crises. So um, Tunisia, for example, um, a not, a, they're a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council, surprised everyone, including especially Morocco, um, when it abstained from voting in the UN Security Council vote to renew Minerso. Um, Many pundits um, in the Maghreb, you know, primarily in Algeria and Tunisia, pointed to the fact that this signifies maybe Tunisia shifting a little bit more closer towards Algeria. And then earlier, there was what I mentioned about um, the series of, uh, you know, deaths of truck drivers um, in, uh, in, in Mali. West Africa and, and um, in the Sahara region as well, uh, on both sides, right, both of whom are accusing each other. And then you have Libya, of course. Now, yeah. Morocco has been at the forefront of, you know, really pushing this narrative of being um, a peacemaker with the various parties in Libya. Uh, Morocco hosted the Sherat negotiations, which led um, to, uh, you know, a deal which <laughs> we, we can well, now see <laughs> what fate um, it was met with. Um, but also recently, I believe Morocco um, is also uh, a member, uh, a party of the Libya uh, negotiations that are unfolding in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Algeria traditionally, historically has always taken a position of, you know, we're not gonna interfere um, in any of these affairs though, anything that we could do to contribute to mediation, of course. Uh, but Algeria hasn't been very sort of um, upfront to the same degree that Morocco has when it comes to Libya. Um, but that's not entirely the case with the Sahel, um, especially in Mali. Um, and both Morocco and Algeria have in various forms kind of bankrolled, supported uh, various uh, factions and groups. But ultimately, what I think is happening right now is that whatever dynamic is unfolding between Morocco and Algeria is going to have ramifications elsewhere in the region. and. This is also why the question of the Western Sahara is so integral because it is at the heart of this problem between Morocco and Algeria. And so long as this question of the Western Sahara remains unresolved, and especially, you know, as long as these um, uh, confrontations keep, continue to escalate without, you know, much condemnation from the international community, we get, you know, the very frequent, um, we call on all sides to sort of <laughs> calm down um, from the UN, but no concrete measures, sanctions even, um, have been implemented, uh, considering the fact that 
people are dying. I mean, there have been a number of civilian deaths so far outside of the realm of like the of of the sol of military um, soldiers. So. I think ultimately, so long as this conflict remains unresolved, we're going to see it manifest um, in various forms, among which are going to be ongoing tensions between Morocco and Algeria. Yeah. Now we have the UN envoy. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, look, um, historically UN envoys on the Western Sahara have been facing a very limited mandate now, the only the last one who was able to somewhat successfully propose a plan was James Baker. Baker, yeah. And that was in the early 90s. And that was in the early 90s. And his plan was unanimously adopted by the Security Council, by Algeria, by the Polisario, not Morocco. And so it's interesting, actually, because Morocco's sort of refusal to adopt that plan has kind of sowed this, um, uh, you know, the sentiment among those that were part of that process, uh, including John Bolton, right? He worked with James Baker. Right. And so, um, you know, he kind of saw firsthand and you talked to him. Well, he's I, personally I recently, invested, I, I get the impression from yes, this. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I recently spoke to um, Christopher Ross, who's a former uh, UN envoy for the Western Sahara. And he is of the mind that, you know, Morocco, if there's anyone to blame for why no progress has been made, it's Morocco. The reason being that, you know, one of the conditions um, directives of the UN Security Council is that the parties, uh, you know, participate in negotiations without preconditions. That Morocco only uh, agrees to participate in talks if it's only its autonomy plan that's discussed, right. if Algeria is a part of the talks. So there's also, without going too much into the nitty gritty of it, but there's this contention over, you know, the round table talks versus like the direct talks. Morocco is very much, no, Algeria needs to be part of these conversations. Algeria says no. <laughs> um, and then even when they do manage to get Algeria to participate, you know, from what I hear from folks, you know, Algeria just kind of remains mum and doesn't really actively participate in the conversations. So the current envoy is going to have a lot on his plate. Well, uh, I mean, uh, you know, he's a clown even before he gets out his plate, I really wouldn't. Right, you know, that. and I think ultimately um, it's going to be up to the UN Security Council to back up the envoy and to provide him with the support to be able to do what his mandate calls for, which is to work towards, you know, establishing a referendum, but I'm afraid that'll require a different and, and more effective envoy. But um, that notwithstanding, uh, Samia, finally, I'd, I'd like to uh, return to a subject you've addressed earlier um, and also something that you were involved with as a researcher in Morocco, namely um, surveillance and, and also uh, citizen media. How do you, how do you, um, what significance do you see in terms of um, the use of uh, these surveillance activities? I mean, especially if you look at um, North African countries, you know, they have a history of very intensive surveillance of, uh, of their citizens long before uh, electronic measures and NSO and all the rest of it um, even existed. So what has been the impact and significance of the kinds of technologies that we're seeing today. Yeah, I mean, 
just a disclaimer, uh, it wasn't just research that I did. I, I was um, part of a citizen media collective okay. called Memphet Kinch. I see. And we were targeted um, with surveillance in 2012. Well, then you're um, the perfect person to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, it was uh, it was software. It was spyware that was purchased from an Italian-based um, company called Hacking Team. Um, and Morocco initially denied it. Um, WikiLeaks subsequently published emails that proved otherwise. Um, and there were no major consequences. Like I mentioned earlier, this question of impunity, the fact that nothing mm -hmm. happened <laughs> to Morocco. Um, and then, of course, more recently, um, the allegations of them purchasing and using Israeli NSO group um, spyware, Pegasus, also used on a number of, um, used by other uh, countries, dictatorships, regimes in the region and elsewhere in the world. Um, so when it comes to Morocco, there's one particular, you know, event. Um, and I think, you know, so the rise of Abdullah um, as a senior and not just a, I would argue the senior security uh, chief in Morocco. Now, Abdullah Hamushi got his start um, as the head of Morocco's domestic intelligence agency. And then over the course of the past few years was also appointed as the head of the national police force. Now, while he nominally serves under the Minister of Interior, Minister of Interiors have come and gone and he's only risen and, and, and gained more influence. And well, his predecessor, I think, was in, was in office for several decades as well. Right. And so here's the thing is that um, Abdul Latif Hamushi oversees a security apparatus that exists outside of the oversight of any other institution. So we could have elections, you know, ministers, what have you, but this security apparatus answers solely to the palace. And over the course of the past few years, especially beginning 2011, um, we have seen this um, significant um, ballooning of the security apparatus under uh, Abdullah al-Hamouji. And this also coincided with the rise of ISIS. So when there were a series of attacks in Europe, oftentimes you would hear reports that among the suspects were Moroccans. Mm. And so this became significant um, for Morocco to become involved with intelligence gathering and providing intelligence with European allies by saying, listen, we have all of the intelligence, we'll give it to you. <laughs> and this was, uh, you know, I had interviewed um, Abdelhaq the former director of, uh, you know, what they call Morocco's FBI, mm. After the FBI. Um, in fact, when I was interviewing, right behind me had a certificate from uh, a training he did in Quantico. Um, but he was very much of the mind that, you know, it is because of us and the intelligence that we have given to European allies that we have managed to foil, you know, other attacks. Right. So yeah. the combination of um, sort of like the authoritarian regression post Arab Spring plus the rise of ISIS has given Abdullah Hamushi oversight over this unprecedentedly major security apparatus that exists in Morocco. And that's becoming increasingly technologically advanced. And so one of the things that he has done under his mandate has been to, um, uh, to put up surveillance cameras all over the country. 
and um, to digitize police records, basically the shift to you know, better sort of police technology using um, these uh, programs and softwares. And surveillance softwares have been integral in this. Yeah. And surveillance is very much part and parcel of policing in Morocco. And it's it's not even just the police who are involved in surveillance. So I I, I recall I, I did an interview with the security specialist uh, when I was working in Morocco as a journalist. And one of the questions that I kept asking was, you know, Morocco has managed to avoid any major ISIS attacks when that wasn't the case for elsewhere in the region, especially considering the fact that Moroccan foreign fighters or ISIS were among, you know, the top three uh, sources of, um, of foreign nationals of ISIS. And uh, this this person told me, you know, uh, everyone is just watching each other. Like right. the chance for that happening are, are impossible. And like this um, idea is institutionalized in the Ministry of Interior with the position of the Muqaddim. The Muqaddim is literally someone who has been assigned a part of this, like a neighborhood and his sole responsibility is to watch yes. everything. Yeah. Who's coming, who's going. So policing and surveillance are embedded within the fabric of Moroccan society and even institutionalized within the Ministry of Interior. And so, you know, it seems very natural that the this path would be the one that um, they go down by using surveillance. And the fact is, is because it's effective. <laughs> They're mm -hmm. able to gather an immense amount of information. And lo and behold, a lot of that information has been used to imprison and jail activists and journalists. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to gather information um, that could be used in a way that, you know, uh, gets at the heart of this question of morality. So a lot of these journalists and activists who have been imprisoned and, and face charges have face charges for, you know, uh, of sexual and, and, and moral, um, of a sexual moral nature, not because of their work. Right. And um, a lot of this stems from the fact that, you know, this information was gathered through surveillance. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, a lot of those activists and, and journal journalists were re revealed um, uh, by a number of organizations to have been under surveillance, um, especially recently with the Pegasus spyware. So, but then there's another layer to this, which is you know something that I still haven't been able to wrap my head around, which is that one of the reports that emerged is that Al Hamushi, Hamushi had targeted the king himself with surveillance, yeah. <laughs> and this is quite damning of an allegation. Now I don't think, and, and he's still he's still in office. Still, right? And so that's the thing is like, you know, any other country, the head of the intelligence is accused of spying on the head of state, you know, some sort He's of either fired or becomes a head of state. <laughs> <laughs> or just disappears. <laughs> um, but that was not the case, not even an investigation, you know, and um, that's a serious allegation, especially considering that for many people, um, they would characterize that Morocco has descended into, uh, you know, a level of being a police state in unprecedented ways, especially in light of the COVID uh, pandemic. And Morocco has one of the strictest lockdown restrictions in the region, curfews, people not being able to travel outside of their neighborhoods. Um, I remember when the COVID restrictions were first implemented, um, the Ministry of Interior used to regularly publish the arrest records of those that were arrested for violating lockdown restrictions. And I think once it got to almost 9,000, they stopped publishing, publishing that information. Mm -hmm. um, many people that I've spoken to that have 
gone to Morocco recently um, and or live in Morocco, obviously, have said that it feels extremely restrictive. Mm. And so I think this is, um, you know, uh, the culmination of what happens when the head of your security apparatus is able to essentially, you know, unbridled power with impunity. Right. Yeah. It's a brave new world. Um, Samia Razuki, I'd really like to thank you um, for sharing your expertise and insights uh, with Connections. It's been an extremely informative discussion. Thank you. Uh, our next episode will be with um, Mark Taylor speaking on war economies and international law on December 8th. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.